0: Good morning church family, now we get to hear god 's Word. Our God is marvelous, and the hope and as we preach god 's word is to stand amazed at Jesus the Nazarene because we know him so well through the preaching of the word we 'll be at a mark chapter one verse twenty nine to thirty nine but as you 're turning there, a little bit of intro. Who is Jesus is the title of this sermon. And we're going to be looking to the eyes of Jesus Christ through the preaching of Mark 1, 29-39. And what facet, what angle we're going to take to learn more about Jesus Christ is this. What did he prioritize? You can understand and know people by what they keep as priority in their lives. We understand this. When their entire lives are ordered by a certain priority... We understand how this works. I mean, you know, these are unique people in our lives, in our society, in our culture, who have a unique focus, who have been given a particular interest that they, that they uh, steward and they care for and to remain focused on. I mean, we understand. My old world, great athletes were supremely focused. Great coaches had an uncanny ability to stay focused above anything else on what they had to do. Great musicians, inventors. They love what they do. You know what they're about. You know who they are. Military leaders, we understand how this works. We totally understand how this works. And, and people like this understand that distractions are the enemy. I mean, you heard Brother Ian Nagata say, in Japan there's all kinds of things going on. There's only a certain, 24 hours in a day, and everything is demanding Traveling, Two hours, commuting, back and forth. Perhaps you could relate to that. Jobs that require 10, 12 hours a day worth of work. That's demanding. Friends and relationships, sports, activities, raising up children. Demanding, demanding. But somehow these unique people, not just only talk about Jesus, but just pe- people who come to mind to you right now, they have an ability to not get overly distracted by things to remain true to priorities. They don't get distracted by peripheral issues. They don't get distracted by negative things that people comment about how they prioritize things. They have ability to stay on track. And really, their priorities, you can see, are more than words. This is how they live, screams about who they are. Because what you emphasize is what's in your heart. So we're going to take a good look at how Jesus Christ, the Lord, prioritized what was most important in how to build his church. And through that, I believe we're going to get to know him better. And so let's turn to Mark 1, 29 to 39. Please rise if you're able to. We'll read this together. I'll be reading out of the NASB version. New American Standard Bible, NASB. Mark 1. 29 to 39. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Verse 39, and he came into their synagogue throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Please open our eyes so that we'll behold more wonderful things about you. Give us understanding through your word. Give us ears to uh, hear, eyes to see, so that we could see Jesus Christ more and we could stand more amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Now, so that we could follow along a little bit easier, I'm going to give you the points ahead of time. And the question that we're going to be constantly asking, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And point number one, Jesus was focused on the priorities of proving Proving who is Jesus? Jesus was focused on a priority of praying. Who is Jesus? Jesus was focused on the priority of preaching. Preaching. We'll go over each point as the points come up. So first question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus was focused on the priority of proving his Messiahship. Proving his Messiahship. Verse 29 says this. Immediately after preaching and casting out a demon in the synagogue, In Capernaum, Jesus was preaching the word. A demon-possessed man shows up, and with full authority, the Lion of Judah roars and says, I have authority over the spiritual realm. This was an intense scene, public scene. I don't think Jesus was calm because of the type of words that are, as I study in the original language, as, as words such as in verse uh, 25 re- Jesus rebuked him these are strong forceful words not calm and and, and, and quiet these are th- there's some intensity that the Lord was showing but immediately after this scene they go into Peter's home or Simon's home and those of us who've been to Capernaum or Israel understand that the walk from the synagogue to Peter's house Maybe one minute if you're slow. I mean, it, it's right here to the D building almost. It's not far. And so, this intense moment in the synagogue, he, Jesus the Lord perhaps has about a minute or two to kind of get back to kind of a normal state. And what happens here in this scene in Peter's house, you see the other side of the Lord. One moment, he's taking on demons preaching with passion. Next moment, he's in Peter's home in a private situation. And they tell him, Jesus, my mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever. It's a serious situation. What does the Lord do? The Lord comes in. I could only imagine as as Peter's mother-in-law is just lying there, Jesus comes in, perhaps kneels by her bed and sees the situation And just shows incredible compassion and mercy. The Bible says right here, he takes her by the hand and lifts her up. Heals her completely on the spot. In Luke, it says that he rebuked a fever. Jesus is showing this tender woman the tender side of who he is. Yet, at the same time, demonstrating the same level of authority over illness that he showed over demons just a moment earlier. So it's amazing. I marvel. I stand amazed at Jesus of Nazarene where we're able to see both sides of the coin almost in identical situations. One moment, he's roaring like the lion. Brothers, you know what I'm saying? You can identify with that. You can see his power, his authority. And the next moment, same authority, yet tender and compassionate towards Peter's mother-in-law. How do we know that Peter's mother-in-law was healed immediately? Well, she started serving him. Isn't that one of those things where any of us who got over coronavirus or had a fever, like, oh, it takes you a while to, okay, the fever's gone, but I, I'm still, I still need a few more days to kind of get back on my feet. Well, she, she got up on her feet and it's like, man, can I make you lunch? Let's, let's, let's be a good host to you. Instant healing. That's the type of authority that the Lord has. Instant, instant And then she just serves out of her gratitude. This man took the time to come to see me and to heal me. And what I would imagine is a typical Jewish day on, on the Sabbath. They would go to the synagogue and then have fellowship together. I'd imagine he was able to fellowship with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And it's interesting how... There's another picture of discipleship. He brings James and John along with him. It wasn't like, all right, guys, I'll see y'all later. I gotta visit my friend. He brought them along. There's value to that, to being able to watch other people care for each other, disciple one another. But what happened is this: the sun would set, perhaps 6 p.m. And then now what's going on? Peter answers the door. He looks out, there's a line out here, there's a mob out here. We need to see Jesus, we need to see Jesus. Now, why do they wait till the evening? Well, if if we understand how the Jews operated, they waited for the sun to set so that it would not be the Sabbath anymore. Because the Bible says that they carried, they brought people to Jesus. Sick people, ill people, people with fevers, demon-possessed people, it says later on. And that would be considered breaking the Sabbath if you were carrying somebody. So they waited. They waited. and But there's a huge line. I mean, can you, And in this area, the space between the synagogue and Peter's home is not super big. So I could imagine a long line in the, which extends out to the courtyard area of the city. And it could look, look like in and out, right? Just long lines. Anytime you want to get in and out, there's always going to be a long line. And that's what Peter saw, and that's what the Lord saw. But what does verse 34 say? Verse 34 says this: And he healed many who were ill with various diseases. This word ill is the word that means in original language, very serious illness. People are on, on the verge of dying with various diseases and cast out many demons. Jesus was displaying his authority over the physical realm and, at, and the spiritual realm in the same scene, in the same setting. This is an incredible scene, if you could even try to picture what this might have looked like. Small house, this house is not the standards of our homes, perhaps. A couple hundred square feet, maybe not even that, and there's a line. And people are clamoring to be healed, people are desperate, people are, are hurting. For years they've been dealing with this. And now here's a man who they saw cast out a demon in the synagogue. And now here's our chance to receive some relief. And Jesus compassionately, graciously heals them. That's what he does. We don't know how long it took, but it was already evening. The sun was already set by the time these, this line came. And he was healing them. And this is an incredible thing because... For me, I get tired after preaching one time, you know, and after I eat my lunch, I'm, I'm pretty much not useful at that point. But Jesus Lord, he had some lunch, he's still ready, he's still serving, still being out there with the people. And the city was lined up to see him, it says. Now, what are we learning about Jesus Nazarene here? What are we seeing about the Lord? Well, just an insight, perhaps, is obviously the Lord is sovereign, That means he's in control over everything, right? As he's proving his Messiahship, Jesus is demonstrating that he's sovereign over everything. And we can also see that the Lord cares. As I look out into the congregation right now, I could see people who are dealing with physical things, whether it's your own spouse, whether it's yourself, people dealing with different types of cancer, nerve pain, People caring for those with Alzheimer's. Isn't this comforting to know that, A, Jesus is sovereign and Jesus actually cares what is going on with his people? What's interesting is that today we know that God can and does heal still. All right? There are no miracle healers, this this is a sign for Jesus. Sign gift. But Jesus still heals if he wants to. And what's amazing is that we don't need to go to a special location. We don't need to get in line at Peter's house. We don't have to fly out to Israel to line up at Peter's house. We don't need to get that special oil to rub on ourselves. That, 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 that's not necessary. We don't need to dip ourselves in a certain lake in France, anything, those sort of things that you don't have to do. You don't have to pray our special prayer. You just take it to the Lord. You simply pray, help me, and then you simply rest in God's sovereign plan for your life. Not amazing. And, and for those of us who've gone through cancer and, and recovered, praise God. But there's also been faithful men and women who are in heaven now. We can trust Him. We can trust him. There's no special formula that we have to do. We don't even have to line up after sunset. We could go to him right now. We could trust him. We could trust him. Now, this first point is talking about proving um, that he is the Messiah. That's exactly why Jesus was performing his miracles. Certainly he had compassion. Mark 1, 41 says he had compassion in the lepers, leper, and he healed them. He He has compassion for people. But the issue is this. There have been many false teachers and false saviors that's come through our planet. They're always around. People claiming to be the Messiah. People claiming to be the next Jesus Christ. There's Korean cults that their founder says that he is the Messiah. Okay, there's false teachers, false gods, false saviors everywhere. And Jesus needed to perform his miracles to prove that he is the Christ the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the anointed one, that you could trust him. You could trust his claims that he is God himself. 700 years before Jesus Christ, those prophetic uh, writings in Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, that talks about what it will be like when Jesus Christ comes for the second time and establishes his kingdom. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. This is blind people given sight. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Although Jesus didn't heal every single person on the planet, this is a sign of things to come. Who else could do this but God Himself? This is Jesus here. Jesus is talking, is demonstrating that he is the Messiah. Looking backwards, Peter. You know, after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead in Acts 2.22, he tells us why Jesus was doing, doing these miracles. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Peter stood amazed at Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. Peter's basically saying Jesus is the one who did these miracles. He's the one that you crucified. You crucified the Messiah. Peter knew exactly what these miracles meant. Acts 10, 38, Peter preaches again and says something very similar. Says something very similar. So these miraculous healings was meant to to prove that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah. It authenticated Jesus' claims that he was the one sent from God, the Savior of the world. That's point number one. Who is Jesus Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So if you're a guest today and you're wondering what is this all about, we're here to worship Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who died for sinners like you and me. This is why we gather. This is why we call it the Lord's Day. The Lord is talking about Jesus Christ himself. We believe that the Lord, Jesus Christ, died and on the third day came back to life to also prove that he is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus Christ proved that he's the Messiah. Let's go on to our second portion of this sermon. Who is Jesus? Jesus was focused on the priority of praying to the Father, praying to the Father. Verse 35, let me read this one verse. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, that's Peter's house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Imagine this scene. On the Sabbath, Jesus wakes up early to preach. Jesus takes on a demon. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus heals countless after that. How would we feel? I don't know if Jesus was an introvert or not, but I would be very exhausted at that point. And Jesus had an intense day of ministry of preaching and healing, and he retreats to a secluded place. I don't know why he got up that early, but he did. Something internally woke him up, and he got up and he goes to a secluded place. Scene number two. We leave Peter's house, and now we're in a secluded place. Where? Perhaps the mountains, the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere that's away from everybody, away from the disciples, away from the demands of ministry, away from other distractions. And he's praying. He's praying. And then later on, the disciples find him praying. And I find it very amazing that Jesus, who's God himself, spends time praying to the Father. You would just think there's this automatic connection that's taking place constantly, which sure is. but he takes time to pray. John MacArthur writes, the proof of his person has been demonstrated in the, his miracles, the proof that he's the Messiah. But the power behind his action was prayer. The prayer was his source of power. Jesus' prayer life was more than just a model for his disciples to follow. It was an essential part of his obedience and submission. At every point, he was fully dependent on the Father and the Spirit. He relied on them completely for the means to fulfill his mission. You see, for Jesus, this was just a way of life. He communed with the Father. He was one with the Father. This was normal. This is just a normal way of life for Jesus to pray, to spend time to be with the Father by himself. Father meaning God the Father. And there's three times in the Gospel of Mark. How many times? Three times where Mark records that Jesus prayed. And each time it was at a critical juncture in his ministry. Each time it's in a secluded place. Each time it's dark, perhaps early morning or evening, depending on how you look at it. It's dark. This this is that time when he begins his Galilean ministry. He prays. Second time is after feeding the 5,000, which signified the end of his Galilean ministry. And then now he's going to go begin his ministry to the Gentile regions. Significant juncture. And then third time he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal and arrest. Before he would go to the cross. He's praying to the Father. I mean, let me give you some quotes from the Lord to let you know how... Tied in, the son was with the father. Jesus and the father's oneness. Jesus said the father loves the son. Jesus said I can do nothing unless he sees the father doing it. Jesus said I seek the will of the father. Jesus said I've come to do the will of the father. Jesus said I speak what the father speaks. I don't speak anything outside what the father speaks. Jesus said I desire to glorify the father. Jesus was all about the father. Jesus was all about the Father. They had a, they shared a perfect oneness. Jesus and the Father, and so prayer focused Jesus on the Father's mission. Why did the Father send Jesus Christ to Earth? This is critical. This is an absolutely critical thing. For us, what does this look like? You heard Pastor Ian the demands of. Japan and demands of Los Angeles. We understand this. What did this look like? What does this look like for us? I don't think this is a prescriptive thing, church family, where you have to go to the mountains. You have to do this in the middle of the night. You have to, you know. However, Jesus spent time with the Father. That's the main point. And if it helps you to eliminate distractions, we should do that. That's a very prudent thing to do. Dr. Lawson, Dr. Steve Lawson, one of my seminary professors, um, gives us some really prudent advice to us preachers. And perhaps I'll share some of these things and maybe you could fit it into your own way and kind of imagine yourself doing the same thing. But So this Dr. Lawson says, give your mornings to God. Similar to what Jesus does here. You spend your time praying, spend your time studying the scriptures in the morning. Give your afternoons to man. He's talking to pastors. I get it. So there's a, there, our rhythm of life is uh, maybe different from yours. And then give your evening evenings to the, fa- to the family. So we, this is what I try to do. Not rigidly, but this is the model that I try to do. Just to make sure I spend time with the Father every morning. And then throughout the day as ministry demands and things pick up, you, you prioritize the time with the Father. I know some of us are evening people. Perhaps that's what you like to do, late night. Well, always said that Jesus got up early in the morning. Sometimes he's praying at night. So I think you're good either way. But the point is spending time with the Father through prayer and the word. Because prayer focuses on, on God's mission for our lives as well. We're called to be participate in the Great Commission as Jesus is building His church, we did a podcast a couple weeks ago with a Jonathan Lehman. Brother Jonathan Lehman was a tall gentleman. Not last week, but the the tall, skinnier gentleman last uh, two weeks ago. And and in that podcast that we that Brother Garrett is leading us to do to help communicate to the Evergreen Church family what, what's going on, and we'll be releasing that eventually. But um, Jonathan brought up that Southern California has been a the birthplace for many church movements. Many church movements had come out of Southern California, believe it or not. Many church movements. That's affected the globe in a lot of ways. And it's some for good and some not so good. Some helps the health of the church. Some hurts the health of the church. But a particular fellow came up by the name of Robert Schuler. Robert Schuler, Some of us might remember him. Do you remember the Crystal Cathedral? Do you remember the Hour of Power? Maybe on a Sunday morning you're watching him wear his robe, gray-haired guy, and, and out he had, his, he had a church building out Garden Grove in Orange County. And what Robert Schuller believed in was the power of positive thinking. He wrote books such as Achieve Your True Potential Through Power Thinking. He wrote a book called Self-Love. He wrote a book called Possibility Thinking Can Change Your Life. And Robert Schuller was into positive things. I and mean, that's who he was. Remember, what I said, well, what you emphasize tells you another who that person is. And his ideas of strategy, he had a strategy for church growth. And the goal of church growth was was about numbers can we get more people into the building can we grow our numbers can we increase our attendance can we increase our program size this is what Robert Schuller was about and his strategy to figure out how to grow the church numerically that is was to go door to door in Garden Grove knock on the door and ask them are you part of a church no okay why not okay what are you looking for in a church and all that information was taken down and collected, and he would go back and say, "Now provide the people with what they want, and they will come." That was his church growth strategy. Jesus says, "I will build my church," but I find that nowhere in the scriptures. Now it's interesting. Two of his major disciples are men named Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. These are pastors. Were former pastors of Saddleback Church and Willow Creek Church, Saddleback here in Orange County and Willow Creek in Chicago area, and, and what happened was a seeker-sensitive movement was birthed. All right, what, what was that? Basically, similar to what Robert Schuller t- taught them, was they would cater to the, cater the church to non-believers, make the non-believer feel as comfortable as possible, make it easy to come in, and keep them by giving them what they want. And make sure you, you stay true to this survey that, that they found. Well, that's an approach now. That is certainly an approach. That is certainly a priority. But does this fit what Jesus was talking about? It's the third point here. Who is Jesus? Jesus was focused on the priority of preaching the good news preaching the good news. Jesus was focused on preaching. Let me read verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him. Where is Jesus? There's more people at the door. Where did he go? Verse 37, they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Peter did his own survey. He figured out this is what the people need. They want more healing. They want more demons casted out. They want more relief. They want some more food. Jesus, will you just stay here and and and, and we got to strike where the iron is hot. This is our chance to grow our empire. Jesus, don't you get it? I can't believe you can't get it. I could get. I could get it. Where did you go? The people will love you. You have a chance to just capture them. Don't you understand? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. Well, just to give Peter some grace, I think we can understand. Perhaps why Peter felt this way. I mean, Peter just left his nets. Now he left his multi-million-dollar, relatively for back then, fishing business. He, Andrew, James, and John left their lucrative business to follow Jesus. I could understand that. Wow, this is an opportunity for all the naysayers who questioned why I would leave my fishing business to say, "Oh, wow, I see why he, that was a wise decision." I could see where Peter and his and the men had an opportunity to. Establish a kingdom, perhaps. Perhaps in his mind, he's thinking, okay, we could take, take over Capernaum and then we'll set, uh, set up different sites. We'll take over different synagogues throughout Galilee. We'll have a, a multi-church site set situation. Perhaps that's what Peter was thinking. Perhaps we could have the first mega church. Jesus We need to keep the programs going. We need to keep the young people here. We need to give them what they want. Jesus, we need to keep the right sports program going. Don't you know people come to church for sports? Jesus, Jesus, don't you get it? We have to keep these things rolling. Otherwise, people are going to leave. Peter, his natural leader, sometimes misdirected, but here he was taking lead again. And let's see what the Lord's response was. He, Jesus, said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Why? So that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Very clear. Jesus was prayed up. Jesus was not swayed by the people. Jesus was not moved by Peter's urgency. Jesus was not derailed from his priority. Jesus had a laser focus on the Father's plan. He was all about the Father. And the Father sent him to die on the cross, but also to preach. Jesus did not come to make this world a better place. Does that shock you that I say that? Jesus did not come here to fix the injustices of this world. Jesus did not come to solve world hunger. Jesus did not come to end poverty and economic imbalance. That's not why he came. That's not why he came. He didn't even come here to eradicate every form of human disease. See, these things aren't bad necessarily, the certain ministries that we have to serve people, which is wonderful. These are good things. Sports program, I love sports. That's a good thing. Certain programs to get people together. That's a good thing. Dr. Lawson uh, reminds us that there's good, better, and best. In the church, it's not a decision between evil and outright dark things. Okay, if that's happening, we got a different problem. But it's always over good things. But there's three levels as good. Better and best. Good things become bad things when we forsake the best things. You understand what I just said, church? Good things become bad things when we forsake best things and better things. Life is about choices. Life is about priorities. What is most prudent for discipleship? And by the way, Jesus knew the hearts of the men. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus said in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see what he just said? the only reason why you want me is so what I could give you. You don't want me. You want the food. You don't want me. You just want the healing. Ken Hughes comments, marvelous as it was, We should not be naive about what was going on here. Most of the people who came simply wanted something from Jesus. There's a reasonable sense in which we cannot blame them. Anyone who has has an ongoing disability can certainly sympathize with them. At the same time, Hughes writes, they tragically foreshadow millions of people across the centuries who have only wanted Christ for what they hope to receive from him. What was Jesus preaching? Well, the question that we're trying to ask is, who is Jesus? What was he emphasizing? Well, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's exactly what he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming that he is the good news. Not the healing, not the food, but him. Jesus Christ. Do you want Jesus Christ? Is this why you're here? As Jesus is looking into all of our hearts, what does He see? Does He see a, a, a busied mind burdened with so many demands of life that you can't even think straight? I got to take care of this. I got to pay this bill. I got to be part of this uh, this uh, obligation. I got to tend to this relationship. Or can He see amidst all that turmoil and intensity a heart that wants Christ? He knows, church family. And look what happened here. I just wanted to show you what happens when faithful preaching takes place. Verse 39, and he went into their synagogues, this is all throughout that region, northern Israel, throughout all Galilee, preaching, and what was he doing? And casting out the demons. Any time Clear exposition, clear preaching of Christ, clear preaching of the Bible is taking place, it's going to confront people. There's going to be opposition. You just got to expect that. This is what it is. And Jesus was boldly preaching, and this is what he came to do. I just want to just turn to one more verse, Colossians one twenty-eight. If you don't mind, Colossians 1.28 is to your right one of Paul's letters after Philippians. If you went to Thessalonians, you went too far. Colossians one twenty eight. I just want to give Paul's philosophy of ministry, which coincides with Jesus' philosophy of ministry, which coincides with Evergreen Church's philosophy of ministry. Colossians 1.28 says, We proclaim him. We preach him. We preach Christ. This <laughs> does not sound good. We preach Christ. Admonishing. That means warning every man. And teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man, woman, and child complete in Christ. That's the goal. Discipleship. Discipling everyone through the word. That is the emphasis. Verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power the Spirit of God, which mightily works within me. Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit, striving, laboring, agonizing, straining for this goal to preach Christ, to sanctify the sheep. This is what Paul was possessed by. This is what the Lord came to do. In no unclear terms, we see out of Mark 1, verse 38, that for that is what I came for, quote, unquote, Jesus Christ. I'll be entering into the seminary in a couple of weeks in July. And I, I kind of wanted to read you this statement that we have at the seminar to remind ourselves why we preach. Okay, this is, I'm, it's in your app, so don't try to take notes. It's just, I'm just going to read here. It's, if you want it, look in the app, and, and it's all written down for you. But just listen, just take this in, all right? This is something the seminary put out to encourage us. We preach Christ, who is the eternal Son, one in nature with the eternal Father and the eternal Spirit, the triune God. We preach Christ, who is a creator and life giver, as well as a sustainer of the universe and all who live in it. We preach Christ, who is the virgin born Son of God and Son of Man, fully divine and fully human. We preach Christ who is the one whose life on earth perfectly pleased God and whose righteousness is given to all, who by grace through faith become one with him. We preach Christ, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that pleases God and whose death under divine judgment paid in full the penalty for the sins of his people, providing for them forgiveness and eternal life. We preach Christ, who is alive, having been raised from the dead by the Father, validating his work of atonement and providing resurrection for the sanctification and glorification of the elect to bring them safely into his heavenly presence. We preach Christ, who is at the Father's throne, interceding for all believers. He's praying for you and me right now. We preach Christ, who is God's chosen prophet, priest, and king, proclaiming truth, mediating for his church, and reigning over his kingdom forever. We preach Christ, who will return suddenly from heaven to rapture his church, unleashing judgment on the wicked, bringing promised salvation to the Jews and the nations, and establish his millennial reign on earth. We preach Christ. Who will, after that earthly reign, destroy the universe, finally judge all sinners and send them to hell, then create the new heavens and the new earth where he will dwell forever with his saints in glory, love, and joy. This is the Christ we preach. So, if we're ever wondering why we spend so much time in the Bible, why do we spend so much time in, 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 in their adult education and, and from the pulpit? We're not worshiping the Bible, okay? We're not worshiping the words written down. But worshiping Christ through his revealed word. The goal is not simply to educate the church, okay? This is not the goal. Discipleship is the goal is to either evangelize someone to Christ or to edify who is already in Christ to become more like Christ. We've got to understand that the Bible is the only reliable source of divine revelation. Only reliable source of true divine revelation is the Bible. So that we will know Christ more. And any Christian that knows Christ more, you will love him more. Any Christian that loves Christ will become more like him. Let me conclude here. Um, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus, church family? Jesus is so much more than just for today. Jesus is more than just how to get the bills paid. Jesus is more than how do I get through school. Jesus is more than how do I get through hurt relationships. Jesus is more than how do I get through this illness, even. Jesus is the healer of our souls for eternity. The gospel is not for our best life now, it's for our best life in eternity someday. The gospel brings the church into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To our guests, you too can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Do you believe this, that there is God and He's holy and righteous and he will judge sinners? Do you believe this? There is a God who created everything. Do you believe you're condition that we have sinned against God? You've done wrong things. you thought wrong things. We've rebelled against God and we will be judged in eternal hell someday by God himself. Thirdly, do you believe that Jesus Christ is? Fully God, fully man, lived the perfect life and paid the price of sin, the payment of, for sin on the cross, where the Father poured out His divine wrath on Jesus, His Son, so that He could treat you and me as sons and daughters. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died and on the third day rose again? And fourthly, your response do you believe? In Christ as your Lord and Savior. So you repent of your sins, repent from following after another false God, repent from following after money or wealth or your own ambition, and you choose to follow Jesus Christ. You give your life to Christ. If you believe these things, you can be at peace with God too. As Pastor Jeremy talked about it, if you want to learn more about Jesus Christ, come see him, me, another pastor, other people who will be praying for you on the side of the world. We would love to talk to you more about Jesus Christ. Now for the church, a point of application. We do care about suffering. We do care about those who are sick. We do care about the poor. We do care about injustice. We do care about social issues and we do want to steward our political rights. I think these are important. We care more than anybody else about these things because we're the church. But Satan would love to keep us distracted on these things and put the preaching of the word, preaching of the gospel on a secondary note so that we could be consumed by these things. So, how can we live this out as a church? This is an important thing that we understand. None of us are miracle healers. There are no miracle healers walking the earth. Otherwise, we would have been going through the coronavirus, right? That's just an obvious uh, study right there. You just got to understand, no one's going to walk through the hospitals and start healing everyone. No one's going to their children's cancer ward and start healing them. If they do, let me know. These healers do not exist. However, as Pastor Ian said, and more importantly, as Jesus has said, John 13, 34 to 35, love one another, even as I have loved you, Jesus says. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, let's love one another in the church, outside our church, by ministering our gifts, ministering our talents, ministering our finances, ministering our time. Prioritize loving one another in the church and then outside of the church as well. Use what God gave you. Number two, we can pray just like Jesus. We have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ if you are a Christian. We could pray for lost souls. We could pray for souls to be built up. We could pray for oneness. We're praying as our, some of us pastors are praying up and doing a Sunday evening prayer and praise service so we can come together and pray on the Lord's Day. Have a concentrated time to pray. Number three, you love well, you pray, but ultimately it climaxes with you preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody. Do you understand the gospel message well enough to, A, to know that you're saved, and B, to share it with somebody? God, man, Christ response. See, Pastor Jeremy, he taught me that. God, man, Christ response to get a nice flow in your mind so you could communicate the message of the gospel clearly in a way that people can understand. Everything moves to this point. This is why Jesus says, this is what I came for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace as we sang today. We pray for the salvation of the souls of the children, particularly those who sang up here. Pray if every single one would become men and women who love you and they would know, would understand the amazing grace that you've given them. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Thank you, Father, for him, his obedience to you. Thank you that he redeemed lost sinners on the cross. He died for the church. He died for the elect. Thank you for bringing us into a love relationship with yourself through him. Thank you for healing our souls, those of us who are in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will give sight to the blind to see, spiritually blind, to see who you are, that they will stand amazed at the presence of Jesus of Nazarene, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that they will know the hope that lies within you, Lord Jesus, the hope of glory. Father, we pray, we pray that the riches of the glory of the inheritance for the saints will be known more for the brotherhood and sisterhood. We would know more and more how amazingly, lavishly rich we are because of you. I pray we would know the surpassing greatness even more of your power to those who believe. I pray that we would know that we're absolutely powerless Without you, we're hundred percent dependent upon your power. and I pray, Lord that we would love one another well. we'll pray for the lost, we'll pray for the edification of the church globally and locally here at Evergreen Baptist Church of St. Gabriel Valley, and we would all minister the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this clear word out of Mark 129 to 39